0: You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk.
1: It was an unexpected privilege to be asked to come and give this lecture. It's not the first time I've given it. It was because of the first time, I gather, that I've been asked to repeat it a second time. Now... Let's get into this lecture. They never turn out the same the second time as they emerged the first, but I will try to stick to the script as best I can. But it's over 50 years ago now that Dom David Knowles, and from his title you'll know that he was a Roman (laughs) Catholic, in his inaugural lecture as Regis Professor of Modern History at Cambridge University, of which I'm glad to say I'm an alumnus, asked who would dare to say that he could approach the study of Cranmer's life without prejudice, or having approached it, that he had presented Cranmer's actions in their true light. And there's certainly a lot of prejudice about Thomas Cranmer. You've only got to read the Roman Catholic newspapers when they're talking about the Elizabethan and the pre-Elizabethan period and the martyrs to know that Cranmer is not their favourite man. That need for careful exploration of our particular subject in connection with Cranmer is made clear too from the words of a former Dean of Westminster, Edward Carpenter. There was ambiguity in Cranmer and something of this has remained in the Church of England ever since. It is this ambiguity largely responsible, I believe, for the Anglican enigma, which we will try to identify in this paper, even if we don't succeed. And to do that, and this gives you a list of headings we're going to have, we must look at the royal supremacy and authority in the church, the place of scripture, relations between church and state, the forms of church worship, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, the nature of the gospel, the pace and extent of reform and even early ecumenism, and you should still get home before midnight, Or, I hope. All these had their place in Cranmer's reforming work and all help us to understand in some measure the enigma to be found in Anglicanism. But whatever I say, by the very nature of things, can only serve as an introduction and to fill it out requires more time and extensive reading. But the first thing we must do is to recognise the peculiar nature of the historical background, the period mainly from 1533 to 1556, and it's a good thing to try to put ourselves back and imagine how we would have felt during that period of 23 years. Imagine the effect these events could have had on us if we'd lived during that momentous period. It's as though we were going back to 1985 from the present and thinking of all the things that have happened in between. Well, in that period of 23 years, four monarchs occupied the throne of England. If you include Lady Jane Grey, you may not want to, but she was for nine days or thereabouts the Queen. The papal supremacy, which had been accepted for centuries, was rejected and then accepted again in that period. Many leading figures in national life were put to death. They make an interesting list in the light of people we can think of today apart from the royal family, because two queens were executed during that period, and if you include Lady Jane Grey, three queens were executed during that period. (coughs) Two lord protectors, one archbishop of Canterbury, several bishops, one former lord chancellor, one vice-regent, a position somewhat similar to that of prime minister today, and one Chancellor of Cambridge University. Quite a notable hit list, really. Thousands of ordinary people were killed as a result of rebellion, and some hundreds were put to death for their religious convictions. Some Protestants, some Roman Catholics, and some heretics. I don't know who they were, actually, whether you'd include Roman Catholics amongst that list or not. But anyway, it's a a wide selection. Several influential noblemen were executed and others were imprisoned. The country was also involved in expensive military exploits. That's rather like it is today. Monasteries outstanding among English landowners were dissolved. Worship in the National Church underwent radical alteration, only to be restored suddenly to what it had been before. The Bible appeared in English translation, was approved for public reading and general ownership and then restrictions were imposed on the use of scripture. Publicly authorised statements of professed Christian truth appeared at different times in contradictory forms and ministers in the church were required to accept and teach the accepted at the moment formula. Well, confusion, as you can imagine, could easily prevail, especially among those with spiritual responsibility. If they'd had news on radios at that time, They would have tuned in the morning to the Today programme to find out who was actually the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Queen or which particular set of rules was in operation on that particular day so they'd know what they were meant to do. It's a bit of an exaggeration. Yet, through all the mayhem, until Mary's accession to the throne, Cranmer pursued a detectable programme of increasing reform. And the Roman Catholic historian P.E. Hughes, not to be confused with the evangelical Anglican Philip Hughes, but though they were both Philips, if it's P.E., it's not the man you want to listen to, sums up his aim in these terms, Cranmer's aim. And obviously he didn't go along with what Cranmer believed, but the substitution of a religion considered to be true and primitive in place of one considered false and therefore blasphemous. And I don't think a Protestant has summed it up better than that Roman Catholic, even if he didn't agree with it. Now, how far did he succeed? Well, what effect did the Elizabethan religious settlement have after the Marian persecution? And that's where the enigma lies in all of that coming and going. If you want to read a bit more about it... Marcus Lone's Masters of the English Reformation, which has been reprinted recently by the Banner of Truth, is a good introduction to Cranmer, along with four other leading Anglican reformers. Jasper Ridley's biography of 1962 goes into more detail about Cranmer, but it's Diermaid McCulloch whose references to original material are invaluable, who tops everything else. I don't think anyone is ever going to write a biography of Cranmer that will outdo his. So if you're prepared to spend about £15 on a paperback massive tome, then that's the one to get. But there's a gentleman who's not well known in this country, at least he wasn't well known to me, but he obviously ought to be better known to us, a man called Ashley Null. And he wrote a book called Thomas Cranmer's Doctrine of Repentance, subtitled Renewing the Power to Love. It was printed by Oxford University Press in the year 2000 and it deals with the development of Cranmer's doctrinal thinking leading up to his liturgy for the Lord's Supper. If you want to buy it, it would cost you 50 pounds and it's about 200 pages in length, so I would think you want to get it from the library rather than buying it. Then there's a man, Peter Newman Brooks, and his research uh, contained in Thomas Cranmer's Doctrine of the Eucharist is also very helpful, and Dr. Null's St. Antolin's Charity Lecture, given in the year 2000, Conversion to Communion, Thomas Cranmer, on a favourite Puritan theme, is well worth reading, much more difficult perhaps to lay hold of, but much shorter. The closing quote reads like this, Ultimately, Cranmer conceived of God's work in the world as changing human wills, not human worthiness. And he believed God did so by loving the unworthy elect so unconditionally as to inspire in them a reciprocal love for him and others. And Cranmer's legacy to the Church of Christ rests on that foundation. He was born in 1489, four years after the Battle of Bosworth and the accession of Henry VII. He went up to Jesus College, Cambridge, became a fellow there, He would have been taught in the accepted medieval scholastic tradition, but which was now influenced by the Christian humanist movement, which stemmed from the Renaissance. And this humanist movement, not like the modern humanist, atheist, secularist movement, put greater emphasis on direct exegesis of the biblical text now, there were some pretty fanciful exegesis of the biblical texts in medieval days and a bit earlier, and they can be paralleled, I think, amongst some types of evangelical today without wishing to be insulting to anybody, um, particularly in the New Te- from the New Testament. And this movement also exposed ex- abuses in church practices... Though at this stage, it didn't seriously challenge established authority. Rather like Luther, it felt, well, the Pope's all right, it's just a few of his subordinates further down the line who are doing strange things that he can't possibly be aware of. Uh, That serious challenge came later, later in its Reformation persona as abuses were recognized as stemming from fundamental doctrinal error. Cranmer was a diligent scholar, intensely interested in the earliest sources of Christian history. Nick Needham would have been very proud of Cranmer because he did take notice of church tradition and what the early fathers said. He was a wide reader, close annotator. He wrote in the margins of his books. You might think that's a terrible practice, but it's very useful for scholars in later centuries who can read what he wrote, and find out what he was thinking at that particular time. It's enabled scholars to trace his theological development from those marginal comments. And the collections he gathered of patristic texts connected with debated subjects. He chose particular things, and you could see what his interests were. (laughs) He was conservative then in outlook. Initially, he accepted papal authority, But his annotations suggest that he was moving towards a more conciliar position, not conciliatory position, conciliar, which means the view that the council of bishops were the real authority in the church rather than just the one man. And that particular tension, it still exists in the Roman Catholic Church today, even though the Pope still remains the top dog. His university work was interrupted however would it have been interrupted a little bit when he got married because fellows in Cambridge colleges weren't meant to get married so he had to give it up and then he went to teach at what was known as Buckingham college which is now Magdalen college Cambridge But his work there was interrupted when Thomas Wolsey, Henry VIII's chief minister, picked him out for diplomatic duties. Rather surprising, he must have known a bit about Cranmer's ability in diplomacy, involving trips to Spain, Italy and Germany. So Cranmer went to all those countries and it gave him valuable experience, useful contacts on the continent and a wider theological outlook. But the fundamental change, and we come on to the royal supremacy here, in Cranmer's position on authority in the church arose from the king's great matter with a capital G and a capital M. That was his concern, the king's concern, about the legitimacy of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon because Catherine had originally been betrothed to his older brother Arthur who died and afterwards eventually Henry married Catherine of Aragon and he wanted to have that marriage annulled. I don't want to get caught up in the details of that because they're very intricate. If you want to read about it, J.J. Carisbrick, who is a Roman Catholic, I believe, in his biography of Henry VIII provides a very good and detailed account. And Henry was desperate for a male heir And he appeared to believe, because he was a pious man after his sort, he appeared to believe that God was judging him because of a marriage that rested for its legitimacy on a doubtful papal dispensation. And Cranmer became involved in this when he suggested to two of the king's commissioners that the dispute should be put before the European universities for their conclusions. And it was a result of all the arguments over the marriage that Cranmer became convinced that the Pope had forfeited his claim to authority by going against God's word in upholding the original dispensation that had allowed the marriage to take place. This was a fundamental thing in Cranmer's mind about papal authority – He should never have allowed it. He can't have authority if he does that sort of thing. And this and other elements in his rethinking led him to conclude that the rightful head of the church in any nation was the monarch. Well, I know we could have all sorts of discussions about this this evening, but I hope we won't. And the God-given monarch had... Sorry, the monarch had a God-given responsibility to rule over all his subjects without any outside interference. In other words, the Pope couldn't interfere with what the monarch said the church ought to be doing. Cranmer had, in fact, actually ignored papal authority and practice in 1532 when he married again, his first wife and child having died quite soon after, when he died, while on, married, while on the continent. This was a clear breach of the vow of clerical celibacy which was imposed by the papacy. Now, during the time that the arguments on Henry's divorce were still pursuing their course, Cranmer was recalled from a diplomatic mission in Germany to become the new Archbishop of Canterbury. That was a pretty rapid promotion for him. William of Warham was the previous Archbishop and he just died and Henry felt Cranmer is just the man who can see this matter of my marriage dispute through to its proper conclusion. But there was a big snag though apart from the fact that Cranmer now had to keep his new marriage secret and live as though he were a single man because clerical celibacy, Pope or no Pope, was still the vogue. Cranmer was required to take an oath of loyalty to the Pope and given his new thinking about papal authority, he was faced with what looked like an impossible situation. How can I promise to be loyal to a person who I believe does not have authority? Well, his way round it has left him open to criticism. He was not an unblemished man, but then who is? He took the oath of loyalty and then qualified it in terms of the king's authority in his own realm. Well, you have authority and I will respect your authority outside England, as it were. That's what he was saying in effect. His own conscience, he felt, was clear. Confirmed in his new position, he was able to adjudicate on the marriage and he declared it null and void, the original papal dispensation being contrary to scripture. So Henry was free to marry another and she'd already arrived on the scene in the person of Anne Boleyn. I have not watched the television series The Tudors. I hope you've not watched it because you would have got a very distorted view a modern BBC view of what life was like in those days. And anyway, the pictures I've seen of Henry and of Anne Boleyn do not make me want to watch it, thank you very much. But this annulment inevitably also made, and this is significant in the light of after events, the Princess Mary, Catherine's daughter, illegitimate. And she was not likely to forget that. You wouldn't forget it if all of a sudden by an act of the Archbishop of Canterbury you were rendered illegitimate. The actual break with Rome and the papal supremacy was legitimised in a series of parliamentary acts. At the end of March 1534 the clergy in convocation (laughs) had under royal pressure Rejected the papal supremacy, even though a lot of them must still in their hearts have harboured a liking for it. And each successive act of Parliament now brought the final breach closer. Around the same time, the first act of succession declared that Henry's marriage with Anne Boleyn was legitimate and that succession to the throne belonged to the first eligible child born to that marriage. November 1534 came the Act of Supremacy. By it, quote, the king, his heirs and successors shall be taken, accepted and reputed the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England called Anglicana Ecclesia. And there are those today who still say, oh yes, the supreme head of the church is Queen Elizabeth. Well, she's not, is she? because the first Queen Elizabeth would not accept the fact that she was the supreme head, she was the supreme governor. And there is a subtle but important difference in those titles. And then came the second act of succession, underlining the previous legislation, and among those executed in 1535 for for refusing to accept the royal supremacy, were Sir Thomas More and Bishop John Fisher. The Pope excommunicated Henry, but the Church of England was now able to pursue its own path, free from papal control, save for the fearsome interlude of Mary's reign. But throughout the rest of his life, Cranmer remained loyal to the throne. He was absolutely consistent about that. Whatever the fortunes of the Reformation party, up or down, he was loyal to the crown. And this, together with his natural caution, explains what might be regarded as the enigma of his policy in the years ahead. He recognised, and he was a realist in this, that reform could only come about with royal and parliamentary sanction. You might want to change all sorts of things, but you were never going to be able to do it without royal and parliamentary sanction. Now, some have criticised... His obedience to the crown, calling him a time-server, concerned only for his own position. And that's something I've read in the Roman Catholic papers about him. But three pieces of evidence present a rather different picture. When Anne Boleyn fell from grace in 1536, he braved the king's anger by speaking well of her in a letter that he wrote to Henry. And even to suggest that Anne might be innocent of the charges against her could have cost him the king's favour at least and possibly even his head. But Cranmer, because he believed it to be true, wrote in her favour. And he followed the same courageous path later when Thomas Cromwell, the king's chief minister at that time and an advocate of reform, lost Henry's confidence in 1540 and was condemned for treason. Cranmer spoke up for him, pointing out his loyalty and his service to the king, but to no avail. And nor was he a yes man to the king when it came to doctrine. And you can see that from the annotations he made, the king would send him some suggested doctrinal statement because Henry VIII was well into doctrine and liked to frame doctrine for himself. And Cranmer would write against it whether he agreed or whether he didn't agree with it. And he wasn't afraid to say when he disagreed. When Edward VI succeeded his father in 1547, Cranmer reminded him at his coronation of his spiritual obligations and of course his reign saw a real advance in reform. Edward brought Cranmer his greatest dilemma though. Mary had the strongest claim to the throne when Edward died. Her father in his will, that's Henry, in his will, which was ratified by Parliament, had named her, Mary, illegitimate though she was regarded as being, as Edward's successor should he die childless. But, and politics were just as awful then as they can be today, Northumberland, the Lord Protector, persuaded the dying King Edward to use his royal authority to designate Lady Jane Grey to be the new queen. She was a godly young girl with royal blood. If you read Faith Cook's book about her, you'll be quite taken with her character. She was a used woman, well, a used young woman, in the sense that Northumberland had married her to his son, And wanted her to be on the throne because he thought he could then manipulate everything that went on. Not a nice character, Northumberland. Anyway, he had his head chopped off in the end. But anyway, as a result, Cranmer didn't know what to do. He wanted Mary to be queen. But Edward, as he was dying, appealed to his loyalty and what could Cranmer do, loyal to the actual reigning king and so his name appeared at the head of those proclaiming Jane to be queen. His provision of men for Northumberland's army raised to frustrate Mary's successful march on London only compounded Cranmer's offence in Mary's eyes and for this he was found guilty of treason after she came to the throne. But she didn't put the penalty into effect because she wanted, above everything else, to break Cranmer and punish him as a heretic. That was more important to her than treason. Even under Mary, though, Cranmer maintained his loyalty to the crown and to due order of process. And his protest against an early change to the forms of worship when she reintroduced the mass, was based not on a doctrinal matter but on the absence of any parliamentary approval. So we can see how the royal supremacy occupied an important place in the thinking of the English reformers and it still has a significance in our national life. Though, it has to be said... The Roman Church or members of it are pressing for the act of succession to be repealed and the Bill of Rights and for the monarchy to be open to anybody, for Roman Catholics to be able to marry into the royal family, even perhaps to become monarch eventually. And I think it's even if we don't believe in the alliance of church and state, while it's like it is, it's better to stay at it is than to become what it might be. Authority problems. What is the authority from which the church should derive its doctrines and practices? Now we make much of our conviction that it is the Bible. That was Cranmer's position and he based his reforms on what he believed scripture to teach. He also encouraged its translation into English and sought to make it available for public reading and for private reading as well. Now, Rome's challenge to us is a valid one. What or whose interpretation is to be followed as the correct understanding of Scripture? We can't duck that. No good saying we believe the Bible because we're all of us influenced by teaching we may have received, preaching we've heard, books we've read, and our understanding goes along those lines. Now, the Roman answer is plain. Infallibility in interpretation is a gift of God to the Roman church and is bestowed by the Holy Spirit on its bishops and supremely, of course, on the Pope. So when the church says, that's what they mean. Not that the whole gathered church says something, but that those who are at the top who've got this infallible gift have said this is what it means. And Protestants, Rome now says, may have sufficient knowledge of the truth to be Christians. Isn't that gracious of them? (laughs) But they lack the full understanding belonging only to Rome. And I was talking to somebody the other day, I think it was Nick Needham actually, when he came to Cambridge the other week and he was saying how, well it's become universalist now. Anybody can go to heaven, it's just they haven't got the full knowledge of what, under Roman teaching now, you could be an atheist and still be saved. You might have a job getting in but you still get in. Well scripture remains the nominal authority for Anglicans that scripture always understood in the light of tradition and reason. But then you ask the question, which tradition though? And whose reason is determinative as to what scripture means? Now there's plenty of scope for ambiguity and enigma there. In more recent times there has been downright contradiction of what the scripture plainly says and means. And the absence of any realistic doctrine or discipline and action has simply allowed this to flourish. I must say, 30, 40 years ago, that absence of any real discipline in the Church of England was the first thing that set me off about whether I was in the right denomination at all. But I don't want to argue about that now. But really... If a man is denying fundamental Christian truth, he has no place in the teaching ministry of that church. And a few ministers today would even describe themselves as Christian atheists. Don Cupid is perhaps the most famous of those. Well, that's an enigma, a Christian atheist. And that's one that would certainly have puzzled Cranmer, thinking, well, how on earth did that happen? But non-conformists can hardly be too dismissive of the Anglican view though because their own, and I have to say being one, our own disarray and individualism indicate that we have problems of interpretation as well. Now would any further reformation have produced a greater and better unity of belief than that of the Anglicans? And history suggests not. Oliver Cromwell did his best, and it was a very good best, to hold together a tolerant, multifaceted, Protestant church based on Scripture. But he rather held it together by power rather than conviction because his death led to its breakup and the restoration of the monarchy brought about by the Presbyterians, and you may think that was a good thing or not, the ascendancy of Anglicanism when Charles II didn't keep his promises, and ever-increasing non-conformity. Well, we do well to remember that there are areas of Scripture that are capable of more than one possible interpretation, and failure to recognise this has made its contribution to the difficulty that we seem to have in presenting any united gospel witness. And I do believe those of us who are genuinely evangelical should stand more together on all sorts of issues, both doctrinal and moral, in our society. But some of these differences of understanding make us suspicious and all sorts of other things which are not so nice. Church government is another issue here. How is the church to be led? Which form does scripture legitimise? What biblically constitutes oversight in the church? Are bishops of the Essie or the Benny Essie of the church, and if you're not sure what that means, are bishops essential to the continuity of the church or are they simply a good thing, the best thing around at the moment? And Cranmer appears to have held the latter position. He had no problem about the ministerial standing of those without Episcopal ordination in his communication with reformers on the continent. And is there room for a legitimate difference of practice in this matter? Now, whatever our views on these matters are, we surely all accept that some form of order is essential within the church based on and upholding the authority of Scripture. You've got to decide on some form of authority and order or else you've got a horrible individualism. And the English reformers settled for the existing pattern of bishops minus obedience to Rome. Now there, some see an enigma in the existence of a state church at all. And this came about, as we know, through historical developments across the centuries following the conversion of Constantine. A state church didn't drop down out of heaven as being the only pattern that you should ever have. Uh, But as a result, in the 16th century, it was virtually unthinkable that church and nation could be separated. All over Europe, people held this conviction that the church and the state were not one and the same thing necessarily, but they were united in a bond that could never be broken. Non-conformity to the national religion, whatever the form of that national religion, was considered socially subversive and therefore to be discouraged and even repressed. And those with political power were considered to have a responsibility to uphold the doctrines taught by the national church, the position of the magistrate, to uphold the truth of the Word of God. But then you see, you come into things, but what is the truth of the Word of God? And if, say, we had a Presbyterian church and it was a Presbyterian government, fine. All right, perhaps. And then you get that lot out, and it becomes a Unitarian church denying the Trinity. Would you then say, well, no, that's not the truth of the word of God, but then, oh, yes, it is the truth of the word of God, and you've got another theological argument going on. So you have to be careful about this link between church and state. In Western Europe, communion with the Bishop of Rome linked these churches together in one until the Reformation ended that. The Reformation broke up the unity of the church, the Latin church, the church of the West. Whatever Rome says, the Pope has never been the universal ruler of the whole church because there's always been the Eastern Orthodox church that has gone its own separate way. And so you get different types of church in the states where Protestantism prevailed. In each state, its particular church provided the social cement that held society together and in 16th century England it was the monarchy and the religion that the monarch espoused that provided the need for social stability. This is now coming into question in the growing multi-faith and multicultural atmosphere in which we live. At the same time, Our religious freedom seems to be coming under threat from the pressures of secularism and political correctness. Are they to provide the principle of national unity with a consequent marginalisation of religion in all its forms? Or we would say no. Can Christianity recapture its former position? Can we expect that it should, and if so, how or in what form? Is this an incentive to closer evangelical unity? Can we learn any lessons from the Reformation about this? The questions pile up. But what comes next will depend very much on the spiritual health and unity of Protestants across the ecclesiastical board. Will God revive us or is he going to chasten us? And at the moment we seem to be more undergoing chastening than reviving now we come to worship and the Lord's Supper this point we need to backtrack to Cranmer's last diplomatic mission providing as it does evidence for a change in his thinking on doctrine his second wife was related by marriage to a leading Lutheran reformer who it is thought may have influenced him in his view on the Lord's presence in the communion service now like the vast majority of the others Cranmer had earlier accepted the recognized doctrine of transubstantiation, that is a corporal bodily presence, actual bodily presence of the Lord in the elements that have been transformed into his body and his blood, the view that is now held still in the Roman church. Through the prayer of the priest at the mass, the wafer and the wine become the actual body and blood of Christ. So you can understand why they receive it with such reverence because here is the Lord himself in this wafer and in this wine. Well, we don't go along with that, but we ought to understand why they treat it with such reverence, believing as they do. But Cranmer began to think in terms more in terms of the Lutheran view that there is a real presence of Christ but it is not in a change necessarily of the elements, it's alongside them. And this may explain why he argued against some of the early reformers, even to the extent of them being put to death. But the nature of this presence was a key factor in his developing theology. He himself, when he was in prison, said that he'd only held two views. That was the Roman one and then he'd gone over to a belief in a spiritual presence rather like that of John Calvin. He seems to have forgotten the fine distinction he made between Rome and Luther because in a way they're quite close over that. But here's another aspect of ambiguity in the Church of England and the wider Anglican Communion what is actually happening in the Lord's Supper and what form should the service take. Cranmer believed quite rightly that liturgy should express theological truth. The 1549 prayer book service gives us clear evidence to form a judgment on what he was thinking at that time. He had now adopted the reformed position but he wasn't expressing it in such a definite reformed position as he was to do in 1552 and probably because he'd only just passed out of the reign of Henry VIII into the time of Edward. There were still many bishops who were more Roman in their thinking than Cranber and you had to move people gradually. It's one of the principles of change within the church that if you want to bring about a change you can do it and say from now on we're going to do it this way and the result is the majority of people who are probably conservative in their approach resent it and resist it but if you do it more gradually and gently lead people on to understand what it is you're doing then they come to accept it. Now, if you're doing it for a bad thing, it's a bad way of going about it. If it's for a good purpose, then it's a good way of going about it. But it's easier to get people to accept change over a period of time rather than just, today we will do what we were not doing yesterday. And you haven't really explained why you're doing it that way and what it really means. Cranmer, because Stephen Gardner, one of the old-fashioned bishops, was... Reading, though he was a naughty man because he knew what it really meant, but he read into the 1549 service, Catholic, Roman Catholic teaching. Cranmer wrote his defense of the true and Catholic doctrine of the sacrament and that argument in there is based on the doctrine of justification by faith and his predestinarian Convictions. If you are an Arminian tonight, you'll disagree with Cranmer because he was what I now described as a Calvinist or Reformed theologian. In his 1550 work on the Lord's Supper, the dominating feature was how the relationship between a holy God and sinful man had been brought about. The doctrine of the Mass, as Rome taught it and still teaches it, took away from the centrality of Christ's work in our redemption. Once for all, sacrifice that cannot be repeated, whereas they go on. Oh yes, it's united to the one in the past, but we're re-offering the sacrifice to God for the sins of people. Hence the idea that you can do it for people who are in purgatory to get them out a bit sooner. They don't have a time factor in it now and it's very difficult to know what they do believe really. But the idea of transubstantiation and any idea of a propitiatory sacrifice in the Lord's Supper had to be rejected. It was simply a remembrance of what the Lord had done at Calvary And by faith, the receiving of the bread and the wine as an indication of our union, our real spiritual union with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Faith is right at the very heart of Cranmer's view of the Lord's Supper. He never denied the presence of the Lord in the supper. It was the way in which he was present that was the key issue here. And Cranmer emphasized the spiritual not the physical or carnal element, but the spiritual nature of his presence made obvious by the use of visible material signs. (coughs) But only where there was faith could there be spiritual benefit. The elements could do no good for the unregenerate. And Cranmer wrote in the preface to his defence, Cranmer said, I'm glad even from the bottom of my heart, that it hath pleased Almighty God in this latter end of my years to give me knowledge of my former error. It pitieth me to see the simple and hungry flock of Christ led into corrupt pastures, to be carried blindfold they know not whither, and to be fed with poison in the stead of wholesome meats, and moved by the duty, office, and place whereunto it hath pleased God to call me, I give warning in his name unto all that profess Christ that they flee far from Babylon if they will save their souls and to beware of that great harlot, the pestiferous sea of Rome. Plain speaking for an archbishop. But it remains true today, surely, that if they believe what they believed and we believe what we say we believe, we should have nothing to do with them. No archbishop is going to preach at a, a Mass and have dealings with something that Cranmer said you should flee from that. He declared plainly that the doctrines at the heart of the Mass undermine the gospel. What availeth it to take away beads, pardons, pilgrimages, and such other like popery, so long as two chief roots remain unpulled up? And those roots were to be found, quote, in the doctrine of the real presence of Christ's flesh and blood in the sacrament of the altar, as they call it, and of the sacrifice and oblation of Christ made by the priest for the salvation of the quick and the dead. And in the 1552 service, this was expressed most clearly in the words spoken by the minister when administering the elements, feed on him in thy heart by faith With thanksgiving. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for thee and be thankful. And in the early months of Mary's reign, it was Cranmer's publicised denial of the rumour that he had set up the Mass again that led to his immediate imprisonment. Now we come to the central issue, and we are moving slowly towards the close. The difference of belief about the meaning and place of the sacraments relates to the heart of the gospel, which is the most important distinction between the Church of Rome and Protestants then, as it is still today. There are lots of other things that we may disagree with them over. But the vital issue, which means that we cannot have union with the Roman Church, is that the gospel that they preach is not the gospel as the Lord Jesus Christ. It may sound very similar, but sadly it is not the same at all. The difference is very subtle. And sometimes people can't see that subtle difference, but it's a, a vital subtle difference. And there are people today who think it extraordinary that some were prepared to die and others were prepared to put them to death over their differences. Well, it's a good thing that Persecution of this kind is no longer an acceptable way of proceeding in Christian circles, but it in no way diminishes the eternal importance of the issues that are at stake. In an age of little understanding of the reality of a God who is holy and a human race that is sinful, it is not surprising that there's no grasp of the importance of recognizing and accepting the only way that God has truly and uniquely provided for our salvation. The most vital thing in the whole of the world, that the gospel should be preserved as it has been given to us by the Lord in his word. But this, And it's this difference over the gospel that concerned Cranmer more than anything else. Not only did he see the utter sinfulness of the human race, he recognised also that this involved the bondage of the will. If we were to be saved, it could be only, only by the grace of God alone. We could not earn it. There was nothing that sinners could possibly do to receive their salvation. Our works had no part to play. We needed Another righteousness, infinitely greater than any that we might ever be able possibly to attain. And in fact, before justification, none of our works could be good in the sight of God, and it says so in the 39 articles. And people today do not like that. Oh, but you can do good works before your a Christian even, well, yes, you can. You can be nice and kind to people. You can help them. You can do many good things, and we're not to despise those, but they will not save you, and they cannot put you right with God. God will not save you because he looks down on you and says, what a kind-hearted person, what a nice person, what a gentle person, what a loving person. I'm going save that person. looks down on us and sees the sinfulness of our heart And in his love says, I will save that person and I will set them free from that sin and they will bear it no more. As Paul taught, we could be justified, accepted as righteous before God by faith alone in Christ alone. And such saving faith could only be found in those God had chosen and in whose hearts he had worked by his spirit. It would be manifested in a life of repentance characterized by love, hope and the good works God had ordained for them. No question here of antinomianism. Be saved and do what you like. If you're saved, you will do what God likes and you will please Him and you will want to be holy. Now, in some ways, this seemed to be almost what Rome was saying, but the difference was real and vital. And justification is a focus of controversy today. Rome and some Protestant groups claim to have come to an agreement on it. There are those and a bishop not so far from here, who've cast doubt on the reformer's formulation of the doctrine. But it's worth remembering that Gregory Dix, in his book, The Shape of the Liturgy, declared that Cranmer's common prayer book was the only effective attempt ever made to give liturgical expression to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And you find it there in the prayer book. There may be things that some of us wouldn't be able to say we agreed with now, but there it is, the truth of the gospel contained at the heart of it, because how we worship God shows what we really believe about God. If we're too chummy, it shows we don't understand the holiness and the almightiness of God. But if we're absolutely miserable, it shows we don't understand what a wonderful thing God has done in our salvation to save us for all eternity. Well, Cranmer expressed his convictions in his 42 articles as well as his liturgy. There was the book of homilies that they could use in statutory services, And this is what he wrote about justification. This was anonymous, but it's widely held that Cranmer actually wrote this particular homily. This faith the Holy Scripture teaches us, that is, justification. This is the strong rock and foundation of Christian religion. This doctrine all old and ancient authors of Christ's church do approve. This doctrine advanceth and setteth forth the true glory of Christ and beateth down the vain glory of man. This whosoever denieth is not to be accounted for a Christian man nor for a set aforth forth of Christ's glory but for an adversary to Christ and his gospel and for a set a forth of men's vain glory. And it would be hard to find any simpler distinction between a living and a dead faith than we find in these homilies of Cranmer. I was going to say something about his prayer book service of infant baptism but I haven't got the time and that's probably a good thing and we'll leave that but we come on to the fact of the unfinished reformation and then close with a reference to his martyrdom. There are many lessons that we can learn. We can't turn the clock back. I'm one of those who's sympathetic to the Puritans in their failed endeavour for further reform during the time of Elizabeth. But much as I would have liked to have seen further reform, I don't think it would have worked politically and in the nation's history, though whether God would have overruled that, I don't know but a sizable proportion of the English population still adhered inwardly, if not outwardly, to the old religion. And the Puritan reforms might have pushed them to breaking point and produced a rebellion. And Spain would have been only too glad to support that rebellion and probably the Reformation in this country would have been crushed by force. Elizabeth's more moderate approach much as we might have liked her to have been more Protestant, actually held the nation together and retained the loyalty, if not the conformity, of the majority of the Roman Catholic population. It's only a minority that was treasonable in its activities. Cranmer probably went as far as he possibly could at that time. But the comprehensiveness of Elizabeth's day was almost like a tight thing in relation to the comprehensiveness that you have now in the Church of England and in Nonconformity as well. With regard to ecumenism, Cranmer recognised the importance of unity among gospel-believing leaders. He tried to get together a gathering of Protestant leaders and Calvin wrote back to, Cranmer commending the idea and said, could I be of any service? I would not grudge to cross even ten seas if need were on account of it, but unfortunately it came to nothing. Well, what happened to poor old Cranmer? The Reformation came to a complete halt with the advent of Mary to the throne. Cranmer was arrested with a number of other leading reformers and put Into prison, and it would appear that here was the great architect of the English Reformation vacillating under pressure from the authorities. Now, it's important that we understand, at least in some measure, what he had to undergo. Cranmer, like a lot of other archbishops, had that academic mind that is always open to examine its own position. Could these people be right? Could that person be right? And he was also subjected to harsh treatment and subtle interrogations. They, they set a pattern for the awfulness of the 20th century in many ways. He was trapped by his own logic in one examination into saying that Nero was the head of the church during his reign in the first century over Rome. He was just pushed inexorably along to that conclusion by his questioners and probably having gone back to his cell he would have thought well what on earth was I doing saying that? He even wondered if the death of Edward and the accession of Mary and the persecution of the reformers and the dashing of their hopes were all not a result of God's displeasure and God's judgment on them. And he wasn't the only reformer who wondered if all this had happened because they were displeasing God. Cranmer was elderly, not in modern terms, but certainly in in terms of his own day. His mind wasn't alert as it once was. His physique did not stand up well to imprisonment. And remember, psychologically, for two decades, he'd been one of the leading and most privileged figures in the nation. And here he was now shut up in jail. He was compelled to watch the execution of his two comrades, Ridley and Latimer. At one point, they released him from confinement to enjoy the comforts of an Oxford college and then slapped right back into prison again. For a little while, he tasted what it was like to be free and then back into prison. And the effect of that is very often, well, if only I say this, I should be able to enjoy that old life yet again. Whether they realised it or not, his captors were employing methods that were to break the spirits of many in future centuries. And his humiliation went from recantation to recantation. Cranmer even attended the service of the Mass and it seemed that Mary had gained the victory she'd craved. But even though she had the victory, there was to be no mercy for Cranmer. And I believe that Mary's hardness of heart was just like Pharaoh's hardness of heart. God did it for his own glory and the vindication of his truth and the vindication of the life of his servant. On March the 21st, 1556, the stage, literally, was set in St. Mary's Oxford for Cranmer's public repentance and for the triumph of Rome. All seemed to be going to plan as he lamented his sins, though some of his hearers began to wonder because his language didn't seem quite what they had expected. But then he came to the climax of his confession, what he claimed to be his greatest sin of all. This was the moment they'd all waited for. What was this sin? And here are the words he uttered, words that deserve to be set beside Latimer's brave utterance and prophecy at the stake when he went to his death. He repudiated all his recantations. All such bills which I have written or signed with mine own hands since my degradation wherein I have written many things untrue, and forasmuch as my hand offended in writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished. For if I may come to the fire, it shall be first burned. And he went on, And as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemy and antichrist with all his false doctrine. By now there was uproar and confusion in the church, but he was still able to add the third thing he felt he must say. And as for the sacrament, I believe as I have taught in my book against the Bishop of Winchester. And the rest could hardly be heard above the noise. Cranmer knew that he'd sinned in his recantations, but he knew too that there was always place for repentance before the God who had so loved sinners who had so loved him that he'd not spared his own son, but given him up that their sins might all be pardoned. God's purpose could not be frustrated even by his own confessed weakness. And as he stood at the stake, his hand thrust into the flames, he cried out just as Stephen had done, I see heaven open and Jesus on the right hand of God. There was no enigma for Cranmer in the gospel of grace and nor should there be for us or in our love for God today and in our readiness to uphold his truth in an unbelieving world. There is some time for questions uh, and uh, dare I bring up the question of baptism but I'll try it. It's uh, a question about <coughs> baptism I fear. <coughs> yes I, I'm not trying to, no, okay I'll, I'll try it. Um, Luther in his, when he, when he was asked a question about how do you know you're a Christian, he said I, I know I'm a Christian because I've been baptised and I take it he's been baptised in the Church of Rome and he was baptised as an infant. Uh, okay one question there, but actually when you read some of Luther's writings on justification and his view on law and grace and, and, and of the, and of the uh, church order. It, it would make perfect sense because he, he's got a marriage between justification uh, you know, how, how does, what is the gospel and how does it come to me uh, and they marry perfectly in, 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 in those two contexts of justification and of, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I want to ask Cramler the same question how does he know he's a Christian?
0: <coughs>
1: you'll, ha- thing- you'll have to wait. He may not be there. How does Cranmer know he's a Christian, was the question? I know, and I think the best thing is to wait until you can actually ask him how he knew. (laughs) Um, No, but I'm only guessing. If you believe in the validity of infant baptism, then you could, I suppose, say that. If you believe in believer's baptism, you certainly could say that. I have professed my faith in the Lord Jesus and my repentance, and I've passed through the waters of baptism. But it was virtually unthinkable then. If you were, if you were a German, you were baptised. Um, even before the Reformation, you would be baptised because that's what was done, to be part of the church. And I mean, those of you who are members of the Church of England here will know how the belief is that the child is brought into the family of the church. If you're an evangelical minister, you will still tell that child later on he needs to, or she needs to be born again, even though you said at the baptism, seeing that this child is now born again. Um, and it used to perplex me, and that was another thing that I couldn't quite cope with. <laughs> is there any indication that Cranmer's willingness early on to be the king's man precipitated his theological change? Not really, I don't think, because he didn't change all that much at that time about his basic theological convictions. He was probably moving that way, but they weren't clarified, I wouldn't have said, at that particular time. Um, It was a matter of papal authority and a matter of, of the divorce and whether it was legitimate or not Obviously, some people will want to maintain that the papal um, dispensation was a perfectly valid one because they want to uphold papal authority. If you hold a different view, then you've got to go along with Cranmer on that one. But once you begin to doubt one thing, then you begin to question other things as well. I mean, I would say that was true. I mean, I was heart and soul in the Church of England and believed that anyone who wasn't an evangelical in the Church of England was a pirate and a mutineer and ought to be put out of the boat, sharpish, because it was our boat. But as time went on and I began to see how there was, what I thought was compromise and so on, that started me questioning. The whole question of ecumenism led me further and further away. So I think it was a developing process with Cranmer other people saw things more clearly earlier, I think, and wanted to go further, like Hooper. And Cranmer and Hooper didn't always see eye to eye about the pace of reform. i just like a cameo of your understanding of what the Jesuits were up to at all this time. <laughs> <laughs> what were the Jesuits up to at that particular time? A just a cameo in a... five seconds. A little. You asked what the Jesuits were up to, Well, they were in the process of being founded and they were being founded as an educational institution to ensure the teaching of Roman doctrine uh, and of being at the Pope's disposal to do that. It took them some while to be recognised by the papacy. The Jesuits are, are, are a multifaceted thing. I mean, they were primarily founded to educate and that's why there are so many schools there are people who are Jesuitical in their use of language, if you like, and um, but again, I think that's not at the heart of our controversy with Rome. We leave the Jesuit we don't have to argue about the Jesuits. Do they preach the gospel or do they not preach the gospel? and if they don't, that's what we need to concentrate on.
0: I have a question about something you said at the very beginning uh, about Cranmer rejecting papal supremacy, and then he, on the other hand, accepted the supremacy of the king. Now, I could see, you, I think you brought out very clearly the political ramifications of that move. But what theologically do you gather was behind that, him, him, him taking that position, or were there other underlying factors that weren't necessarily theological or political that might have moved him to accept the king as supreme as opposed, over the church as opposed to the pope?
1: in all of these things usually there are different factors at work one is there has to be an authority if it isn't going to be the Pope it can't really be the Archbishop of Canterbury because he's not a political figure as such so it needs to be well the the, the monarch um, I don't know, do you come from the United States? Well, if you had a state church in the United States, which you can't possibly have, you're not allowed to, it would be the president of the United States under those circumstances, which may create all sorts of visions. But, yeah, I think there would be more than one, but he started with the given that the church and the state are as one. So if, if you do take the Pope away... As the spiritual head, then it, you naturally go to the monarch, and you don 't really think about any any other possibility i don 't think there was a, an evolution of thought about um, authority in the church, and of course you had all the turbulence at the opposite extreme of the um, it used in its strictly correct sense of anabaptist i people who held to certain doctrines which would be really subversive to things as they were then. I'm not talking about Baptists as such. And
0: were the English people in line with, uh, with Cranmer or did he see that that was also the way that they were seeing it, that the, the people should be, see the king as being supreme as opposed to the Pope?
1: Well, there was a political development going on in Europe of the setting up of nation-states and it's always very difficult to know what the English think, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> even, even with opinion polls. And um, do they, <laughs> do they do think? They think? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, and they may well have had a, a patriotic impulse that made I, but I tell you one thing that would have affected them. That was the amount of money that was going out of this country into the papal coffers. Uh, So if you want to find a more um, carnal influence, I think it would be in taxation. And aren't we all interested in taxation? (laughs) I have found in this church a book of common prayer with the 39 articles in the back. And um, Mr. Murray referred to these as the doctrinal basis of the Church of England, that Cranmer drafted and simply thought it would be helpful to say, Cranmer wrote, it's not lawful for the church to ordain anything contrary to God's word written. Neither may it expound um, one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. And I think that's something the Christian Institute would believe, and all of us here. And does that not show that whatever enigmas may have been around, the basic uh, a position of the church which Cranmer established, was one of belief in the evangelical faith of the Bible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. But on the other hand, the Roman Catholic wouldn't. They'd say your interpretation of the Bible is not the correct interpretation. Ours is, because we have an infallible Pope. And we'd say, no, you haven't. There's nothing in the Bible about an infallible Pope. So this is where the argument becomes much more difficult. Really, Um, we know what we believe to be true and we should act on that and uphold that. But other people believe something else to be true. They'd be idiots, wouldn't they, if they knew they were upholding a lie that was going to send them to hell. They're deluded or at best they might say we are. But yes, you're right that that is the principle. But then you see some of us looking at that would say, then the Church of England needs some further reform before it really conforms to the articles themselves. I mean, just upholding those articles would be a great step forward for the Church of England if they would only do that. But unfortunately, there's been a sort of pulling back from saying to people, you've got to leave the ministry. Um, If I'd been a bishop... (laughs) 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 the church would tremble collapse (laughs) I think we must draw the meeting to a close now we are past our allotted time I just want to thank Mr Murray very much indeed for his very full talk on Thomas Cranmer and the way in which he's responded to questions